The following is a paid presentation of the King Law Firm, LLC. You're listening to Today's Law with practicing attorney Patrick King. Patrick will discuss legal points of view, history, government and politics, and current events. Whatever your pleasure, join Patrick King for an insightful and entertaining half hour. Here's the host of Today's Law, Patrick King. Good evening, everyone. I am Patrick King. You are listening to Today's Law with Patrick King. You can reach me online at patrickkinglaw.com, via email at kinglawfirm1 at gmail.com, or by phone at 462-8405. Tonight is our fifth live show, and I'm going to be talking about technology, Facebook, social media, email, cell phones, various apps, computers, cameras, videos, drones, how all these things will and can impact your court case in plain and simple, your your life. We want you to participate in the conversation and provide examples of how technology has real legal and practical, practical implications on your everyday life. Ron, how can people join the conversation? Let's see here. You caught me uh, a little bit unprepared. Be sure to send your questions or comments to today's law radio at gmail.com. And uh, Patrick, you started this series as a resource for local audiences and to try to teach them a little bit more about and become a little less afraid of the law. And um, this show is no different. So uh, why don't you tell us what's in store for us on the 16th? Because that's a pretty special guest that you have lined up. I do. I have a very special guest. My wife and law partner, Stephanie, will join us. She's going to help us uh, understand and describe a few practice areas of uh, state planning, probate, and overall asset protection. Stephanie concentrates her practice in estate planning, such as wills and powers of attorney, probate, and estate administration. So send us your questions or comments Let's take a real quick break, and then let's talk technology and the law. To watch and listen to on to watch and listen on video to all of our shows, please visit PatrickKingLaw.com. That's a new. Uh, that's a new domain name for you. I've been used to the KingLawFirmLLC.com, uh, so this took me a little bit off guard. Video for tonight's broadcast will be available online within a week. To participate in tonight's show, you can send your questions and comments, and please do that to todayslawradio at gmail.com. Now back to Pat's to Patrick King and today's law. This evening we are discussing how modern technology can impact your case. Let's start with our analysis with civil cases. There are two really types of main court cases. One is a civil case. That's usually where two parties have a dispute, be it a personal injury case, such as a car accident. It could be a medical malpractice case. It could be a family divorce, child custody case, or it could be a probate case. 
It could be an employment law case. Contrary, uh, criminal cases where the government, be state or federal government, is bringing a charges, that is criminal charges with a prosecution. So let's start off with civil cases in Illinois. I'm going to start off with just briefly describing mechanisms by which parties find information and how do we develop evidence. So we hear a lot about, well, do you have any evidence against me or what do you know? Well, let's start off with, in Illinois, it's called full disclosure under the rules of civil procedure and uh, the Supreme Court rules of Illinois allow for a party, that is a party bringing a lawsuit, has a lot of different ways to obtain information, facts, and data. Subpoenas are where a party uh, serves a document upon another to produce evidence. Um, It can be documents, it could be records, it could be photographs, it could be medical records or medical bills. In addition, parties exchange uh, what we call written discovery, that is questions and answers, as well as the request for document production. And of course, there's depositions where a party would be, or a witness would be placed under oath before a court reporter. And that that person would be required to actually answer questions under oath. So there's different ways and different tools about how one party can learn information about another party, primarily in a lawsuit or a child custody case or an employment case. And so I thought what we would do is we would talk today. It's so relevant about technology because technology is changing every single day, and it it affects our lives, but it also, as a lawyer, it affects my clients' cases. So I thought let's start off with a uh, divorce case that has child custody implications with it. You have a husband and wife who are seeking a divorce. Let's say it's in Madison County. And each each party has the ability to seek discovery. Now, it's a little bit different because this is a domestic relationship where they know a lot of private details about one's life. Oftentimes, the uh, problem is, well, who, who should get primary custody over the child or the primary responsibility? Well, what ends up happening is the parties will exchange information and the best place to go is Facebook. I was just going to ask you about that. I mean, Facebook is intertwined in every minute for a lot of people, every minute of their waking lives. Uh, they've got their phone tethered to themselves. And it's not just – it's it's the cell phone. So as I, I sit here right now and I have my, my Apple iPhone and I'm looking <laughs> at it and just a couple of clicks, I can be on Facebook. And what ends up happening is in a child custody case, what, what parent's the better parent to maybe have the responsibility or what we call formally known as child custody? And there's an allegation, for example, that the dad is uh, an alcoholic or drinks too much, the father of the children, and obviously denial, denial, denial. But what happens one Saturday night when the, uh, let's say it's after a Cardinals baseball game and he's with all his friends? And it's late, and there's a few pictures at post about uh, beers and shots and how much fun we're having, and it looks like a wild crowd. Maybe that was a weekend the dad was supposed to have the kids and let his mom watch the kids, grandma. Maybe it's a, a, a really critical time where he's supposed to be meeting with a guardian at litem to be interviewed about what's in the best interest of the kids. And let's take that photograph. It could be very harmless, but it goes up on Facebook. Well... Perception matters, right? 
And the perception is he's out late, he's drinking, he looks intoxicated, and, oh, a couple of his friends shared it and what they were all saying. What people don't realize is Facebook is publication. You're publicizing, not just publicly, but Mm. be like an author. I draft something, I put it in a book, and I sell it to people. Well, we're not selling things per se on Facebook other than our personal lives, right? We're, ex- we're, we're expressing ourselves, whether it's a post or we're sharing a picture for commented input. I mean, the whole design behind Facebook, right, is to promote something, whether it's oneself or one's life or business. I have a business page. Mm-hmm. And that's one way. Uh, not only we can bring in text messages. Um, Text messages are exchanged between not just one person anymore, but you can do a group text and how that can spiral out of control. And as I was thinking about the show, I was thinking that I know that I I do it too, but it's our our language. And as a lawyer, language really matters to me, how we we say something, how we write something. And if I was to write a formal letter to Ron over here, dear Ron – and I would have good grammar and punctuation. But when Ron and I text, hey, Ron, what's up? Or, hey, Ron, are you going, and I may abbreviate, or LOL, laugh out loud. Well, remember, when people are texting, there's a vagueness. There's abbreviations. It can be interpreted many, many ways. Misinterpretation. <laughs> so think what happened in a divorce case. And think already the emotions flying high. So think about these text messages that can go around among family members between the divorcing husband and wife, if there are neighbors or friends. Yeah, but isn't that supposed to be private communication? Well, that's, I mean, isn't there a privacy element to that, Pat? Well, that's great. Um, and, and I'm going to get to privacy and cell phones at some point. Please hold that thought. Okay. In, in a, in a uh, case, uh, say, uh, again, where I'm using a divorce child custody case as an example, that your cell phone records will be subpoenaed and your text record uh, messages, uh, text can be subpoenaed. Facebook, the access to it can be authorized now. If I'm representing somebody and they're wanting all of my clients' private information, I'm going to object. But depending on the circumstances in the case, a judge who would ultimately decide may allow for your Facebook pages to – if they're not private but they were taken down, maybe you have to provide access to look at that. Your cell phone records can be subpoenaed through AT&T or Verizon. Your text messages can be subpoenaed. So although there is a sense of privacy, not everything you do is truly private anymore. I was thinking, what's the difference between like a, a diary and, and then, uh, you know, maybe sending a text message? Well, the old diary or journal is I'm writing something private with a lock and key or I'm putting it under my mattress or my bed or I'm just keeping a log of what I did over the last month for my weight loss. You know, what did I eat or mm-hmm. how much did I exercise? When we put something on electronic – We know it's connected to the Internet for hackers. We know there's an ability to immediately share. So anytime I have an email, that email could be shared with hundreds or thousands of people. Same with Facebook. The whole design is to publish to the world on the World Wide Web. Um, Another example of how technology can affect a case, and it, it was one of my cases where surveillance, and that's something big. We had I had a client who was injured in a tractor trailer accident. And she was very injured. She uh, suffered a, a very serious shoulder injury, but through surgery and therapy, she made a pretty good recovery. 
Well, unbeknownst to her, she lived in a rural community that the uh, insurance company hired a private investigator to watch her on a particular Saturday where she was uh, doing a little yard work and using a shovel. Now, it was light yard work. I watched the video. It wasn't terribly bad. But, again, surveillance and video. And think how far you Perception. And perception. And think about... You know, if you're making a claim for injuries, um, the perception was she's she's not injured, she's healed. So there's a whole another set of uh, records and documents that show that she went through a pretty tumultuous process to become uh, in a in a physical position to to do yard work. But the whole idea behind it was that technology was really important, and they could capture they can capture that just off a cell phone. I mean, these cell phones are amazing. You know, you you mm-hmm. point and you click. And Ron and I, right now, I could be recording him. He wouldn't even know it. Now, we have video here, and we know we're being recorded. But think about um, when you're in an important meeting with somebody, and there is a sense of privacy. Well, you might be recorded. Now, some some of that activity can be unlawful, and I won't go into legality of what's what you can and can't do. What I'm saying is technology and privacy go so hand in hand. And, yes, your thoughts will always be private between yourself and if you wish to share it with somebody else. But once you put it in text, once you put it in email and on Facebook, you are relinquishing some of those inner protections. Um, So remember, there's this battle between technology and privacy. There's There's a big battle going on because... Technology allows for us to have an advancement. Um, We're able to communicate more effectively. We're able to record. We're able to preserve records much easier than we used to. We don't need big file cabinets. Just scan it in and save it on a server or on on a computer. But privacy is being changed. Although you won't find privacy in the U.S. Constitution, we know that the Supreme Court has declared that we have privacy rights. Many find it in the uh, unreasonable search and seizure. And I do have a Supreme Court case I'm going to mention here in a few moments. Um, But there's a battle between privacy and technology, and uh, the government plays a big role in all these things. Um, The other thing I was going to mention is an employment discrimination case, how technology comes into play. Let's say, for example, there's a sexual harassment claim against a female employee. Uh, and uh, there's an email that was shared among the managers or supervisors and male employees. Well, all of that, those emails are going to be saved somewhere, at least at most corporations and most companies. And through subpoena power and the, the rules of discovery, both in state and federal court, a lot of those emails and that metadata can be retrieved and preserved and oftentimes... Uh, what I do as a lawyer when I get involved in a case, I immediately send a letter called a preservation letter, and I say preserve all this evidence. And if you don't, the court's going to issue sanctions, and courts will. Courts will issue sanctions against uh, parties for – And what fa- happens when they do that? Well, it can range from uh, – different sanctions can range from uh, having certain presumptions admitted in court, certain jury instructions, the jury being instructed that there's a presumption that – Something on this video may have been um, bad towards the party that destroyed. Or it can get as bad as striking a, a pleading, meaning that uh, the other party could be found uh, you know, at fault 
pretty pretty quickly. So there, there's a range of penalties. Could they ultimately dismiss cases over stuff like that? Well, I think I think it could definitely affect a case. Um, mm-hmm. I think if they struck pleadings and there was no, uh, I think you can move for judgment because of the. Now that'd be the most extreme and egregious. There could be fines, associated mm-hmm. attorneys' fees if you okay. were hiding evidence. And I said, well, we spend all this time, energy, and money. I want costs and fees to come back for my client because we we spent a year digging for information you told was lost and missed, misplaced or whatever, destroyed, and now we found that it really exists. Hiding evidence, but technology allows for there to be um, much more access to the other party, and there's it just it, it changes the game. It changes the whole well, game. Well, let me ask you this real quick. Um, I'm I'm interested to know. We we all are vulnerable. That's what you're telling us. We're vulnerable. That that you you should be wary of what you're putting on. You know, Facebook, what you're putting in emails, what you're saying in text, what you do on video, blah, blah, blah. But I'm kind of curious as to what are some of the things that we should be mindful of as, you know, kind of common sense. Hey, don't do this. Don't do that. It could be particularly, you know, damaging to you in a... In a court environment. Well, I would what say. What can you tell us there? Well, I would say that that if a, a situation happens and you decide that it's it's it can go two ways. That it's important enough. Take pictures, for example. If a tree falls on your house and you wanna you wanna get the moment and you wanna preserve and record that for your insurance claim, get that picture immediately. But if you know it's going to be disputed, maybe don't put it up on Facebook. Maybe don't start sharing it with all your friends and family, maybe just because now they could be discovery witnesses. Um, in a practical side, if you don't want somebody to know it, don't publish it. And I think what people fail to realize is once you put it out there into the marketplace, LinkedIn, Snapchat, Facebook, you send an email to a bunch of people, you've published something. It's just like being an author. It's like when I publish a blog on my website, I don't draft that just for me. I draft it for others. But when I put anything up on Facebook, it's publication. Uh, another another example I, I asked uh, one of my secretaries today, I said, what's another example of how technology affects the law? And in a bankruptcy case, for example, when somebody files a, a bankruptcy, there's an, a bankruptcy trustee assigned to the case to collect assets. And there was one particular case where the trustee, and she's a particular trustee, she goes on everybody's Facebook, and she saw that the gentleman who claimed to be in debt and he wanted to be discharged, he wanted his debts discharged, was riding a four-wheeler. And so she held up the process until it could be verified it wasn't his four-wheeler. Something that small can affect uh, a federal bankruptcy case. And so, again, that's another example of technology. This this particular person was putting on Facebook, he has a four-wheeler. It wasn't his, perception matters. I want to switch gears and go into criminal cases briefly here. Um, for example, how does technology affect a criminal case? Well, um, and this is going to lead into my Supreme Court case. Let's take, for example, somebody is um, suspected of driving under the influence of alcohol, and they are pulled over. And, um, you know, and this happens quite a bit. The client will come in, and they will either say, yeah, I drank too much. I'll say, okay, well, let's, let's mitigate it. Let's, let's do some things to, to help you through this really tough process. 
But I've had a few occasions where the client says, no, I was sober. I only had two beers. Well, do you know if the, the officer was recording this on the dash cam or body cam? I don't know. And then we get the video. And the video always tells the truth. Videos don't lie. And there may be a time where your client performed wonderfully. He did the one-legged stand test. He did the walk and turn test. He kept his balance. He was polite if there's audio. But the police report says how intoxicated he was, vice versa. You have a client who says, I was sober and I did not have anything to drink, and then they're falling down, either in the road. and the You can see how kind the officer's being by making sure the person doesn't fall, and you can see they're trying to walk them through this process, and the officer's completely respectful. So again, that's, that's technology actually helps my case because it gives me the truth. Videos don't lie. Um, I want to go into the cell phone in criminal cases. So um, I, I have a Supreme Court case called Riley v. California, and it was argued on April 29, 2014. It was decided June 25, 2014, and it was decided by Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the, wrote the opinion. And to give a little background, um, we have our Fourth Amendment to the Constitution, which prohibits unreasonable search and seizure. So let's take, for example, a, a home. Well, in, in order for police to get inside my home for search purposes, they need to have a warrant. That is something signed by a judge. There's got to be some particularity about it, and it's got to be requested by police or, or you know, police law enforcement or a prosecutor, and the judge grants it. They can come in my house and they can search. Or if there's exigent circumstances, that is somebody is committed, say, a felony and they're fleeing the scene and due to uh, maybe they're going to destroy evidence in the home, police can maybe get in there. Okay. So let's take uh, – and then when it comes to our persons, we can be searched without a search warrant. It's something called search incident to arrest. So if I am uh, – my, my clients who are arrested for DUI or for some other offense, uh, you're under arrest. They place you in cuffs. And before they do so, as you're being placed under arrest or you're being put into the squad car or taken into the police station, they can search your person. Keys, wallet, cell phone. Well – what can the police search? That's, that's a question. And so the United States Supreme Court took that up because the lower courts, that's some state California courts, and the appellate courts really didn't know what that answer was, and they're going back and forth. Well, let's talk about our iPhone briefly. Let's say it's an iPhone. Well, my iPhone is a mini computer, and it has a lot of storage capacity. I, you can have videos, pictures, emails, apps, games, notes, text messages, whatever. It, it's a camera. It's a video camera. Um, it, can, it can be a flashlight. It can be a calculator. It tells me the weather. Okay, so we know there's a lot of data on that. Well, the United States Supreme Court um, ruled, and I think it's in favor of privacy. Uh, I really do, that, that a officer can grab the phone, inspect the outside. They can look at it, okay? Um, it's not like a plastic bag where they can maybe unzip the bag because there could be physical object in that bag that could be harmful. You don't know. It could be razor blade. It could be a mini knife. You don't really know. But according to the United States Supreme Court, um, absent exigent circumstances, some emergency, um, the U.S. Supreme Court said that the, self, the search of the cell phone data, that is the information inside the phone, 
can only be um, given to officers, can only be accessed to law enforcement through a warrant. And some of the language in this was uh, Chief Justice Roberts says, moreover, even though the search incident to arrest exception does not apply to cell phones, other case-specific exceptions may still justify a warrantless search of a particular phone. And he talks about an exigent circumstance. One well-recognized exception applies when the exigencies of the situation make the needs of law enforcement so compelling such exigencies could include the need to prevent the imminent destruction of evidence in individual cases, to pursue a fleeing suspect, and to assist persons who are seriously injured or threatened with imminent injury. And so the, the, the general rule that we gathered from this Supreme Court case is that you would have to have a search warrant to get into a cell phone absent some emergency situation. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts says, our cases have recognized that the Fourth Amendment was the founding generation's response to the reviled general warrants and writs of assistance of the colonial era, in an, um, which allowed British officers to rummage through homes in an unrestrained search for evidence of criminal activity. Opposition to such searches was, in fact, one of the driving forces behind the revolution itself. And so he, he even goes as far as to, to tie this into really why we have the, the Bill of Rights, why we in particular have the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution. That is an unreasonable search and seizure. And so I, I think this case has a lot of relevance today, and I think it, it really is a, um, a victory for the individual. Now, one may ask, um, how is law enforcement supposed to do their job? Well, the Supreme Court addressed it, and they said, well, technology goes both ways. Officers have electronic means. They can email a judge an application for a search warrant. The judge could sign it and email it back to the officers in, what, 15 minutes? So the exigency is there. Let's say it's a, it's a ter- terrorist threat or major crime, but it, it, but it cuts both ways. And so they do ad- address that. Um, Modern cell phones are not just another technological convenience. With all they contain and all they may reveal, they hold for many Americans the privacies of life. And so I I, I think that was a pretty good decision in terms of uh, our privacy because, again, technology v. privacy. um, With with privacy, we give up some police powers. And when police gain more powers or the government, we give up some privacy rights. And there's a battle. It's a battle going on at all times. Yeah, I uh, I find that fascinating. The this and, and I'm going to s- switch gears one quick because we've got a little less than five minutes left to to talk about this topic. But I'm going to move this to the technology has infiltrated your profession, and there are you know cyber lawyers out there. There's legal Zoom. There are ways for people to get legal assistance without, you know, talking to it is how do you feel about that? Well, what I would caution is, and I've said it in past shows, Ron, what a great question, is that when you're online, when you're on the internet and you're doing your own research, I think you can become a more informed consumer. You can find out a lot about me, for example, by going on my website. That's smart. You can watch my videos. That's smart. 
But if you're trying to diagnose a particular legal problem on your own through LegalZoom or your own research or somebody's blog, I would tell you, be cautious. It's just like trying to self-diagnose a medical condition. Mm -hmm. You say, well, I have chest pain. I'm going to go online and research, and now you think you have a heart attack. It could be indigestion. So what I would say is be, be cautious and be careful because I think it can help you become informed but realize when you're doing your own research online, again, anybody can publish. That's what we're talking about. Anybody can be a blogger. Anybody can be a publisher, and they may not be using the right sources. They may be quoting somebody else who's wrong, quoting somebody else who's wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks like we're down to a minute. Is that right? We go fast here. Hopefully the audience feels like this goes fast. It goes fast for Ron and I. Um, I want to just uh, wrap up here, and as we have less than a minute, uh, I thank you for listening tonight. We have one more show on August 16th, and Stephanie, my wife, will be joining me. We're going to talk about estate planning, probate, and estate litigation. We may have expert witness uh, John Plack on for a few minutes as a CPA And so uh, before Ron's going to take us home here tonight, I just want to thank you for listening and being part of the audience. Uh, Thank you to our audience as well as Confluence. Ron? All right. Well, you just stole my thunder because I'm excited to to see uh, and and talk to Stephanie in this environment. I know it's one of her favorite places to be on stage. So, Steph, if you're listening, we're going to be ready for you with a, a gentle... Real nice, comfortable environment for you to to uh, talk in. Uh, she's going to be talking about estate planning, probate, and how to protect our assets. And I think we all have interest in that. Today's law is underwritten in part by John Plack, CPA in St. Louis, Shivers Frozen Custard in Godfrey, and Quality Buick GMC Cadillac in Alton, who were just on my show previously. Special thanks to WBGZ, Confluence Media Network, and videographer Rick Vaughn and Ken Clayton for being here this evening to make this show a reality. For Patrick King, I'm Ron Tanner. Today's Law with Patrick King is a paid production of the King Law Firm, LLC.